Hi, I'm Mason, pastor of Vision and Preaching here at Resurrection Church. Thanks for tuning in to this teaching from one of our morning worship services. This is not meant in any way to supplant your teaching at your local church, but we hope you find this helpful in your walk with Christ. Who is this man? The question lingers through every chapter of Mark. Three groups of people seem to keep reappearing in Mark's gospel with their own answer to the question. The crowds were astonished by Christ. They watched him perform miracles and teach with more authority than they had ever heard. Is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist? Or is this someone far greater? The religious leaders hated Christ. They couldn't stand the attention he received, but more importantly, they couldn't stand the threat to their power that he posed. The disciples, they followed him. Sure, they will spend most of the gospel quite confused, hardly understanding why Jesus is saying and doing such things, but they trusted him. As we journey through Mark, the gospel writer will pose to us a question. Who do you say he is? Every miracle, every interaction, every parable, they're all leading somewhere. They're all leading to a coronation, but it's not a coronation you'd expect because Jesus isn't the sort of king you'd expect. Okay, I'm gonna be reading out of the sermon text that Mason's gonna preach on here in a minute. Um, this is Mark chapter three. Um, Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they may accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, from, from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the crowd heard all he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so all that had to had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make, make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called to them and said to, him, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 
And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. If you'll bow your head in prayer, we'll pray over the service. Father, thank you so much for just giving us the blessing to come out here today to worship you, to learn from your word. Um, thank you for your word. Um, uh, I just pray that you would just let it sink into our hearts, kind of the gravity of, of really what we're doing here. Um, you know, we come here to get lifted up, but we also come here to, to understand where we fit into this whole thing. And by understanding where we fit into it with our sin and what we bring to the table, we glorify you by understanding where you fit in, which, I mean, you are it. You're everything. Um, I just pray that you would just be with Mason today as he brings the word, um, that he could really just, just take what you want us to know and just give that to us and let us, let our hearts be open to it so that we may be prepared to hear it and really just apply it to our lives. Um, this word has a supernatural element to it, Father, that we don't even understand, but I just pray that we would not hinder that in any way. Um, just thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Um, I just pray you would, you would be here with us and that we would really just, just be able to understand you more fully and just love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. It's my lead in. Uh, good morning, uh, ushers. If you guys would go ahead and come forward. Res kids, uh, you guys are dismissed to go to your classes. I didn't hold this. All right, it should be on now. Well, it's good to be back. Uh, I had a really important conference last week. Uh, a friend of mine, his name is LeBron, we put it on together every year around January, and uh, so thanks for uh, coming out last week, and uh, Jason did a great job, uh, and I heard it was a good, good Sunday, so I was bummed to, to miss it. Uh, this morning, as you've heard um, so well there, we're reading in Mark chapter 3. I'm going to preach the whole chapter, but really there's a, a theme that kind of pops out at me every time I, I read this, and I think it kind of binds the, the whole thing together, uh, and that's this theme of community. And we'll talk more about that in, in just a moment. But first, I want to do a couple of announcements. The first announcement I think is good news for all of our volunteers. Uh, this morning, after we finish this service, do not tear anything down, uh, because uh, another church plant in town, Hope Church, uh, pastored by Derek Roberts, who was in my wedding, and so he's a really good friend of mine, uh, they're going to be gathering here on Sunday nights uh, as they get started. So this was their first service scheduled, and the place that they wanted to have it bailed out on them about earlier in the week of this week. And so uh, he came to me, and I, you know, made him trade me his firstborn child. And uh, no, not really. So basically, they're going to be gathering here at, uh, I think, 5 o'clock. And so if you want to come support them, be here at 5 uh, I love what they're doing, I support what they're doing, and I'm just so honored that God could give us a hand in that uh, planting of Hope Church. So uh, be, don't leave anything, I mean, take your stuff, unless, you know, leave Derek a Bible, Lord knows he needs one, um, but leave the chairs and everything else set up. A uh, second announcement, sort of piggybacking with Hope Church, 
uh, I have a desire broadly to build a, a, a far more unified Christian community in Charleston. And I think starting from the ground up is the best way to go about doing that. And so Derek and I have planned a uh, sort of an Ash Wednesday celebration uh, for our churches to combine together to celebrate with. And so on Ash Wednesday, February 14th, uh, what our secular liturgies would inform us is Valentine's Day, but our Christian liturgies would tell us is, is Ash Wednesday this year. Um, we're going to have a noon liturgy in here. There uh, will be no music. It will be stripped down, just be kind of going through the Book of Common Prayer, some of what we uh, usually do, but it will be a special Ash Wednesday service. And then that evening at 6 o'clock on Ash Wednesday, there will be a larger service where I will be preaching. There will be some music, but we'll work through the same liturgy. So I hope on Ash Wednesday uh, you can take some time to come out to uh, the gathering, and I think it will be really helpful. Uh, Last sort of uh, administrative announcement. Ten days from last Tuesday, our banker tells us the, the paperwork he's waiting on will be finished. So ten days from last Tuesday is when we will be uh, about to close on the Capitol Theater. So I'm really thankful for your patience. Uh, this process began, I think, in late October, uh, and it's tarried now until uh, February. But uh, we're going to close on it, and uh, I'm really excited about that. So uh, hopefully in the next couple of Sundays, I'll have some keys to show you uh, about the the new, the new digs. So, All right, in Mark 3 this morning, we'll see that conflict really enters the Markan narrative in full force. There was conflict absolutely in chapter 2. The seeds of it were certainly sown. Jesus and his followers were getting some puzzled looks. They were getting some pointed questions. But in chapter 3, this all comes to somewhat of a tipping point. They decide they're going to unite together to destroy him. And nothing brings people together like a common enemy. I think really through a process of conflict and refinement, conflict and refinement, conflict and refinement, two communities are forming. We'll call one community the community of Christ, and we'll call the second community the community of Satan. The name may sound a little bit intense, and it is a little bit intense, but I'll justify it in just a moment. One community is bigger, right? One community is far more powerful One community is composed of the power brokers of the day coming together to stamp out this radical young rabbi. These folks think that they're losing control of the crowd, but as we'll see at the end of Jesus' earthly life, these people have far more control of the crowds than they think they do. The other community, however, is quite small. They, yeah, we'll see great crowds following Jesus. Yeah, we'll see a lot of people sort of Um, being drawn to Christ's ministry, but the few people who follow Jesus are not very many. The following statement isn't always true, but seems to be worth considering as we work our way through Mark. Jesus spends more time avoiding crowds than attracting them. As you read through the Mark and narrative, you tend to think that Jesus spends more time avoiding crowds than he does attracting them. So one community we'll see is big, it's powerful, it's wealthy. The other community is small, it's a ragamuffin community, if you will, of people who don't have a whole lot of earthly power and earthly talents. But we will learn about Jesus' ministry strategy. Jesus is interested not just in his current generation, but in the generations that would follow. Jesus is going to invest in a few guys who will invest in a few guys, who will invest in a few guys, and so on and so forth until we get to where we are today in 2018 with Christianity being the worldwide movement that it is. Christ and his ministry is a sort of seed, a seed that has sprouted and grown into the tree that we know as the kingdom of God. Now, when we call this other community the community of Satan, what do we mean? 
I think scriptures teach in Ephesians chapter 2 that there are two types of people in the world. We are following we are all following somebody, and ultimately that somebody we're following is following somebody and following somebody, and go on and go until we get to two players, right? Two powerful individuals. You've got the God of the Bible, and you've got the spiritual enemy. And that might seem a little too dichotomized, that might seem a little too simplified, and in a sense I understand that, but, but let me dig in a little bit. Paul writes the church at Ephesus. He says, we are all following the course set before us. But we don't know that the course set before us was set by a spiritual being. We don't know that Satan has set the course that we are all walking in. And that we, in our natural state, when we're born as humans on earth and we're, we're growing up, we are being sort of formed into this counter image of God. We, we are being formed into this image of, of Satan, if you will, in the way that we're living. And let me unpack that for just a moment. We were dead, the scriptures say, in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived. We were dead in our sins, following the course of the world, being like everybody else. But the course of the world is actually following something, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Paul goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, has made us alive together with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he may show us the immeasurable grace and riches of his love and kindness. We'll see the community that unites in our text this morning to stop Jesus as sort of this community of Satan, this growing people who are antagonistic towards Christ and his message. And we'll see in Christ, Christian community, in its embryonic form. It seems oversimplified to say there are two types of people in this world, but for our intents and purposes this morning, it is true. There are two types of people in this world, those who are following Christ and those who are trying to be like everyone else. But in the process of being like everyone else, we don't realize that we are following a spiritual being. We are following the prince of the power of the air. We are following Satan. Do you follow Christ today, or do you follow the world? This passage will show us Christian community in its embryonic form, and I think it has something to say to us today about how we live in that Christian community. So look with me in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm just going to kind of talk through the narrative and sort of go through it as we go, um, somewhat exegetically, but more so just kind of topic to topic. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. That so that is really important, right? So that they might accuse him. They're watching Jesus, not so that they can uh, be impressed with him, not so they can worship him, not so they can ascribe to him the power that he's due, uh, but they're watching him so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Again, that's so that they might accuse him. We see the motive of the Pharisees here is quite clear. Their goal is to pin Jesus down. Their goal is to accuse Jesus. Their goal is to to find a way to garner public opinion against Jesus so that they may put an end to his 
public ministry. Jesus surely knows this, and Jesus sort of creates this uh, public scene where he's going to make a theological point in this moment. And so he calls uh, these people together. He calls this man with the withered hand because he's going to heal this man. He's going to make a point in the process of healing him. Jesus asks a very simple question, a question that should not have been hard to answer. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Well, the answer is clear, right? It's lawful to do good, save life, heal. I mean, the Sabbath is meant for man, not man for the Sabbath, as we saw in the text last week. So the point shouldn't be that hard to understand. But the Pharisees, we see the scribes, the religious teachers, they don't respond. They don't respond. They are, in fact, silent. Their silence reveals a lot about them. Verse 5, we see the conflict is kind of cutting both ways. They're mad at Jesus, and we see here in verse 4, Jesus is angry with them. Or verse 5, sorry. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. I want to note a few things. He looked around at them with anger. Jesus is angry at the Pharisees. He's grieved at their hardness of heart. It's worth noting that Jesus is angry. It's worth noting as well that Jesus never sinned. What makes him angry? He's angry because he's grieved at the hardness of their heart, that they have lost the love which they had at first, that they have forgotten the whole point of the scriptures which they study. Jesus has come to be a peacemaker, not necessarily a peacekeeper. Peacekeepers avoid conflict, and no matter what is at stake, peacemakers sometimes have to enter into conflict because the truth is what's at stake. Jesus acts here with intentional publicity and makes a very clear point. Get this, church. Their love of tradition, culture, and power has overtaken their love of the Scriptures. The religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, their love of tradition, culture, and power has overtaken their love of Scriptures. A question that should be really simple to answer is not really simple to answer because their worldview has been jigged by this convoluted matrix aimed not at the love of God, but aimed at maintaining power. Their love of tradition, culture, and power had overtaken their love of the Scriptures. Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. And in verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, this is an interesting pairing of two very, very different people, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees uh, were expecting some sort of a cataclysmic messianic kingdom to replace Herod. So Herod is sort of placed over these people governmentally, and the Pharisees are expecting there to be this cataclysmic event where someone comes from their lineage and overtakes this Herod figure and begins to rule over their people. That's what the Pharisees, kind of the common uh, religious undertone of the Pharisees was. The Herodians were almost the exact opposite. The Herodians were people who wanted to keep Herod in power. So we have people who could not be more different politically, right? The Pharisees believe that one day a Messiah will come and he's going to knock Herod off his stool. Where you have the Herodians and their sort of belief is that Herod is a great ruler and that Herod should keep ruling. And so their aim is to sort of be jewish e, but a very, very liberal form of Judaism and to sort of keep Herod in power and then just go on together. It's almost like today if you had sort of your religious right folks 
and your um, mainline sort of left-leaning Protestants who are sort of on, on, on uh, complete opposite ends of the political spectrum, if you had them come together to unite against this common foe. So you've got Pharisees, what we would think of as sort of more far right, and you've got these Herodians who are more so far left, but together they're coming together to defeat Jesus. Because Jesus isn't just a threat to power on the left, and Jesus isn't just a threat to power on the right, Jesus is a threat to all power. Jesus calls everyone to repentance. The Pharisees and their worldview is being threatened by Jesus, the Son of God. The Herodians and their worldview is being threatened by Jesus, the Son of God. So the Pharisees and Herodians say, you know what? We still really don't like each other, but we both really don't like Jesus. So we're going to come together and see if we can, the text says, destroy him. We begin to see here in these first six verses this sort of coalition of people beginning to form who are going to try to stamp out Jesus, and this coalition of people is going to continue to form over the centuries that would follow to stamp out the movement of Jesus. We see in embryonic form this satanic movement, right, to, to slow down the spread of the gospel, to stop Jesus from doing what he is called by his Father to do. Now look with me in verses 7 through 12. In verses 7 through 12, at verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now, I think there's a little dichotomy I want to note that's not a huge deal, but we'll begin to, to dig into it at the end of the sermon. The crowds are coming to Christ sort of on their own initiative. That Christ is for them this sort of viral figure that they have a degree of interest in. Many are interested in what he can do for them. Many just want to catch a glimpse at Christ while they can. So you've got the crowds on, on one hand who are coming to Christ at their own initiative, and then on the other hand you've got the disciples of Christ who we're going to look at it in just a moment in the following passage, and they're coming to Christ at, at Christ's initiative. You know, very little in these apostles, in these disciples, in these guys we're going to look at in just a moment, would make them seem like great candidates to lead the sort of movement that Jesus has come into the world to start. I think we can look back on this and sort of over-spiritualize it and forget that Jesus is working with a, a very, very ragamuffin group of people. They're not the smartest guys in the world. They're not the richest guys in the world. They're not the most well-educated guys in the world. They don't come from great families per se. And as we see throughout this whole gospel, they really never know what in the world is going on. Yet Christ chose these 12. And I wonder who was in the crowd, right? I wonder the composition of the crowd, the people who might make great candidates for leadership in Jesus' movement that Christ passes on for his own purposes. I think the largeness of the crowds we see in this passage further highlights the smallness of what we're about to see in verse 13. Look with me there. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. I think if you underline things in your Bible um, or highlight on your Bible app or whatever it is, 
so that they might be with him is perhaps the most important little line, I think, in the entire sermon this morning. Because even though the disciples weren't much, even though the apostles like me and like you weren't really that impressive in the eyes of man, Jesus understood and they would come to understand, as we understand today, that proximity to Jesus means more than talent ever will. Proximity to Jesus means more than talent ever will. I'm struck by the simplicity of the call on their lives. He calls them that they simply might be with him and that they then might do the things that he does. Don't overlook that Jesus has been called, he's been sent on a mission to seek and save the lost, right? To, to, to transform the whole world by transforming individuals and he chooses to invest in 12 guys. One's going to betray him, yet Jesus doesn't seem to think it's a waste of time to invest in him. But their calling to be with him is foundational. It's what prepares them for the second part of their commission. Jesus is going to spend more time with his disciples than he does everyone else on earth combined. I think there's so much we can learn about discipleship and the nature of the church in this passage. There's just no way for there to be true transformation without there being true proximity. There is no way for there to be true transformation without true proximity. This is sort of the church in embryonic form, right? These apostles are going to be the leaders in the church over the next generation, and then ultimately they're going to have a a very special role to play in the life of the church. And Jesus is investing in these 12 guys, and really you could argue that really just three guys of those 12 are going to receive the majority of Christ's attention. But this is, like I said, this messianic community forming. This is the, the baby, the seed of the church that's growing. And what it means to be a member of this community is to, to do life together. Jesus never has downtime, right? Jesus is always with these people because it's the life-on-life contact that Jesus has with other people that makes a difference in their life. These people are transformed not because Jesus brings them into a classroom and teaches them once a week, but these people are transformed because Jesus eats with them, he lounges with them, he, he travels with them, he does everything with them. When we think discipleship, church, We have got to move from program-driven to person-driven. When we think discipleship, we have got to move from program-driven to person-driven. You can show up at every discipleship group you have and go through the motions, and your life won't be transformed, and no one else in your discipleship group's life will be transformed. But if you love the person in your discipleship group, you come to those meetings with intentionality. You pray for them when you're not at the meeting. You check in on them when you don't have to. You invite them over when it's not a formal reason to invite them over. And you begin to actually grow a relationship. And you begin to see that as you spend time together, you begin to change one another. And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the church, is that as you begin to change one another, there is a third person, a third far more powerful person who is also there. And that is God the Holy Spirit. And he begins to take you and to take you. And as iron sharp sharpens iron so one man sharpens another and he begins to mold you into his image and you begin to grow in love and all of a sudden your community that once felt forced it might have felt forced for months you begin to grow in love and it begins to feel like a genuine family 
This is the messianic community. This is the church. Bearing another's burdens and being involved in someone else's life is countercultural. It was then and it is now. Leave me alone. Let me do what I do. I'll come on my terms. But we have got to be a people who don't live like that. We have got to be a people who are living within true proximity of one another. When we think discipleship, we have to move from program driver to, from being program driven to being person driven. Now, verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Side note, if you have family issues, don't think that Jesus doesn't understand. Now, verses 22 through 30, we're getting, again, we're kind of going back to the community of Satan here, right? We're seeing the community of, of Christ being formed. We're seeing these apostles being chosen. They're being called to him. Jesus is sort of calling them to be with him, and then they're gonna, he's going to send them out to do the sorts of things that he's doing. And we see sort of this, 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 be, this birthing of the church. And then the, the opposition that we saw in the first part of the chapter in verses 1 through 6, they're showing back up here in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Honestly, that's what I should have named our Chihuahua, Jenny, Beelzebul. He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And Jesus calls to them and said to them in parables this, how can Satan cast out Satan? Verse 24, I legit for most of my life thought Abraham Lincoln said this first, but Jesus said it first, and Abraham Lincoln said it way later. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. So Jesus is saying, in, in essence, quite simply, like, time out, <laughs> right? I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. Like, let me pretend I'm Satan for just a moment. What is the benefit of me casting out my own demons? Right? It doesn't make sense. He says, if, if, if the house is divided, the house can't stand. If the kingdom is divided, the kingdom can't stand. Like, Satan can't cast out Satan. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus goes on to make the point that if Satan were to be cast out, he'd have to be cast out by someone stronger. And Jesus is, in fact, that someone stronger. Jesus, as the text says, is the strong man who has come to bind Satan, that he may plunder Satan's house. And then in verses 28, 29, and 30 is a short passage that has worked its way into Bible trivia and many, many late night conversations with people who have read their Bibles uh, and don't know what this means. And it is a spooky sounding verse. I'll read it to you. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The unpardonable sin, right? The unforgivable sin. It sounds really scary. It sounds kind of like the, the seven deadly sins, you know? It's like uh, the unpardonable sin. I hear that and I think, oh, yeah, <coughs> like, did I just do it? You know, did I say the thing that I can't say and now I'll never be forgiven for it? But I want us to understand this morning that this passage, this verse, cannot be lifted out of the context it finds itself in like any other verse. What is this unpardonable sin, and how do we know if we've committed it? The unpardonable sin, I think, is to knowingly, willingly, and persistently attribute to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. The unpardonable sin is to knowingly, willingly, and persistently attribute to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a sin of full knowledge. You see what Jesus has done, and instead of attributing it to God, you attribute it to Satan. It's an ongoing disposition of the heart. Your heart is hardened against God, and your heart chooses to believe elsewhere. It's verbally attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. So we see that if you're concerned that maybe you have committed the uh, unforgivable sin, if you are concerned that you've done that, you have not done that. Ultimately, the unforgivable sin is getting Jesus wrong. It's attributing what God has done to what the enemy is doing. It's seeing the evidence that testifies to the supremacy of Jesus, but choosing in the face of it all to attribute that power to Satan. Because ultimately, the point of divergence between the community of Christ and the community of Satan is the person and work of Jesus. What do we do with Jesus? Who is he? And what has he done? And why does it matter? And how you answer that question is going to determine who you are. It's going to determine where you spend eternity. And it's going to determine the sort of community you keep today. The point of divergence between the two communities is the person and work of Jesus. And the unforgivable sin is unforgivable because you don't want forgiveness. You're attributing to Satan that which God has done. You're choosing to not believe the message of the gospel because you are misrepresenting Jesus and who he is. Now, verses 31 through 35. We come back to Jesus' earthly physical family just one more time at the end of the sermon. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, excuse me, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Christ's community is a, a new family. This passage and ones like it is one of the reasons that my favorite metaphor for the church is the family of God. They come to Christ, your family's looking for you, and he looks around and he says, this is, this is my family. How incredible is it for us this morning from different backgrounds, different ages, different races, different gender, different everything. We, we look around at one another who are so superficially incompatible and can say with sincerity, this is my family. Christ is forming a radical new community. That's going to become clear later. But this fledgling messianic community we see in these pages has grown into the worldwide movement of Christianity that we know today. You eat dinner with your family, right? And we have our own sort of family dinner as the people of God. We partake of the Lord's Supper together. And uh, worship team, if you guys could go ahead and lead us to the table, and we will uh, follow in just a moment. I want to think about the community of Christ and for a few moments as we draw to a close. The community of Christ is formed by Christ at his own initiative. That if you're a Christian today, you're not a Christian because you thought it would be cool to try it out, right? You're not a Christian just because you think, you know what, I, um, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to this, this. And by the sheer power of your own will, you've become a Christian. That's not the case at all. But if you're a Christian, it's because God the Father looked at you from eternity past 
And not because of anything you bring to the table, because of his great love and his great mercy has said, I want you to be in my family. In fact, I'm going to send my only son to die in your place, to pay the penalty of your sin, that I might adopt you into my family. Yeah, I know who you are. Yeah, I know the mess that you bring with you. I know how you let other people down. I know how you let yourself down. I know the things you say. I know the things you do. But I love you. And I'm going to form you. I'm going to bring you, rather, into my community. The community of Christ is formed by Christ at his own initiative. Secondly, the community of Christ is near Christ. The apostles were called not to be spectacular, but they were called to be obedient. They were called to live in proximity to Christ because it's in that proximity to Christ that they could be transformed. Like the apostles, we are called to live near Christ. And because we're near Christ, we're near one another. The community of Christ is near one another. We are people who love each other. We are people who respect each other. We are people who give grace to one another. The community of Christ is near one another. And finally, the community of Christ is, like those apostles, on mission with Christ. We are living in proximity with Christ so that we are transformed by Christ to take the message of Christ out into the world. As we draw to a close, I have a question. If you're a member of Christ's community, if you're a member of the church, how does that impact your life? How is your life different because you're a Christian than it would otherwise be? My challenge for you this morning is to take a step outside of your comfort zone, to live in proximity to Christ, to make sure you take the time every day to be in the Word and to be in prayer. Because it's in that proximity to Christ where your life is transformed. It's in that proximity to Christ where the bitterness in your heart begins to dissipate slowly. Where the envy you feel towards other people begins to dissipate slowly. Where the grudges you hold begin to dissipate slowly. The unrighteous anger that so quickly pops up in you, it's when you're in proximity to Christ, the Holy Spirit begins to change all of that. Be near to Christ, for he's near to you. And be near to your brother. Be near to your sister. Take a step outside of your comfort zone. Risk some loss to be near another. I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, I'm going to invite you to join us at the table. Uh, this table is for Christ's community. It's like our family dinner. Uh, but if you're not a Christian, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, and just observe what goes on this morning as Christians observe as the supper. And if you have questions about it, ask afterwards. But we partake of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, broken for us and shed for us symbolically in the food and the drink. And we look back on who Christ is and what he's done. We look ahead to the day where the community is all together and we take this meal and we look around, we look around at the people, our brothers and our sisters, who we're called to lay our lives down for. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. And we see in our text this morning a couple of communities beginning to develop. 
one community is antagonistic towards you. It's composed of a whole bunch of different people, Herodians and Pharisees alike. And they don't have much in common, but the only thing they do have in common is they love their power, they love their culture, and they love their traditions far more than they love you, far more than they love their fellow man. And then we see a second community, a community that by all sociological standards should not have survived as long as it has, should not have accomplished all that it has. But this community is unlike that community in one simple way. It's yours. You're in your community. Your presence and your power are enough. Father, as you called your apostles to be near you, so you reach out to us this morning. Lord, there are defenses all over this room. There are excuses abounding. But I pray that your spirit would break through those defenses, would tear down those excuses, and that we would commit to being near to you and near to one another. And I pray that the world, when they see us, wouldn't necessarily see the most talented people, the smartest people, the most gifted people, the best looking people, but the world would look at us and see a group of people who are committed to you and who are absolutely committed to one another. And I just believe, Father, that that community would be really, really attractive to a whole bunch of people who want to know who they are and why they're alive. Thank you for meeting us here on an ordinary January morning to love us, to shape us, and to send us in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the next few moments, feel free to approach the table, and then we'll all gather back here and sing, uh, and then after that be dismissed. So you're dismissed to the table. <laughs>